0: You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community.
1: I'm Esther Rakusin, and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. On today's show and in future shows, Locally Sourced Science will be covering different scientific topics relating to the COVID 19 pandemic. Today, you'll hear a feature from veterinarian and Cornell graduate student, Dr. Scarlett Lee. She interviewed Dr. Stephen Osofsky, a wildlife veterinarian at the Cornell College of Veterinary Medicine. He talks about the evidence that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, came from wild species being sold in urban markets. Osofsky then discusses why governments should put a stop to the trade and sale of wildlife species in order to conserve those species and maintain human, animal, and environmental health. After that, in observance of early spring and the reemergence of flora and fauna, you'll hear a lively oral landscape of birds and bees. Cornell student Ben Demoris, who attended last summer's workshop on applied science communication at Cornell's Shoals Marine Lab on Appledore Island, talks about some of the research being done on the island. First off, here is Dr. Scarlett Lee with her interview of Dr. Stephen Asofsky.
2: Welcome back to the Excelsior podcast series on the novel coronavirus pandemic. Today we are delving into the wildlife origins of SARS-CoV-2 and how to protect wildlife and humans in the wake of this outbreak. Dr. Steve Osofsky, a wildlife veterinarian from the Cornell Wildlife Health Center is joining us. You can follow him at wildlifecornell. That's all one word at wildlifecornell on Twitter. Let's begin. Today, I, Dr. Scarlett Lee, will be talking to an expert on wildlife and infectious diseases. Let's get started.
0: Sure. My name is Steve Osowski, and I'm a wildlife veterinarian and the professor of wildlife health and health policy at Cornell University's College of Veterinary Medicine.
2: One of the reasons we were interested in talking to you today is that there seems to be a lot of confusion in the media and the public on the origin of the novel coronavirus. Can you talk a little bit about the animal origins of this virus?
0: There's still some work to be done, but it does look like this particular virus probably did come from a bat, and it may have moved through a number of other species. Uh, there's some genetic similarities that we're seeing uh, with a virus that's been isolated from a pangolin. Um, but the, the really important issue is that it, all of these emerging viruses, the majority of them, are coming from wildlife, and, and we are really creating the opportunity for that to happen.
2: Can you explain what you mean by creating the opportunity for this to happen?
0: So as with uh, SARS before the current coronavirus outbreak, when we harvest wild animals from all over the world and bring them into markets, let them all mix together, what we're doing is creating the perfect storm. If you're a virus whose goal is to spread, you couldn't really design a better system to aid and abet a pandemic than than these wildlife markets that we see, particularly in, in urban centers in Asia. So you have species from literally all over the globe that never under natural conditions would run into each other, all packed together, urinating, defecating, bodily fluids mixing, and then people come into the equation. Obviously, they're buying these animals, they're butchering them, and they're eating them, they're getting exposed to whatever pathogens these animals brought from all over the world. And A lot of these pathogens are meeting species that they've never met before, and that's when we have these opportunities for viral jumps, including the ones, obviously, that lead to humans and create the situation we're in now.
2: Can you describe kind of the cultural relevance of these live animal markets? Why do they exist in the first place? Because it's not something that people in the U.S. are necessarily accustomed to. Well,
0: I think we have to be very careful because it's really uh, difficult to generalize. It really varies from country to country and even within countries. So, there are parts of the world, say in in Central Africa, where a lot of people are absolutely dependent on wild uh, animals for sustenance. Think about our own you know our origins of, uh, as humanity we We evolved eating animals, and so there's a subsistence situation in many parts of the world, particularly poor areas um, but that's different from what i'm describing I'm talking about the more commercialized activities where the that the wild meat is no longer actually in necessity in terms of meeting one's caloric or micronutrient needs it, it's often a culturally preferred product. It may convey some status. It may be something that particularly older generations in places like China are used to consuming, and it's it's almost a comfort food. But what's interesting and actually encouraging right now is the younger generation in places like China is less and less interested in these uh, wild wild species as foods, and that can work in our favor in the face of this crisis.
2: That's a a really excellent point. That there's a lot of variation in these markets. Because recently i've been seeing a lot of articles in the news about how we should close all live animal markets, and that's not necessarily the best solution it sounds like
0: I think anything we can do to you know sensibly mitigate this risk we should be doing, and I think the lowest hanging fruit to at least lessen the likelihood of future pandemics is to close those markets where we have large congregations of wild species for commercial purposes. If you think about it, we as the global community are subsidizing uh, this activity at an extraordinary cost. All you have to do is look around the world today and all of the public health suffering, all of the economic chaos is related to this trade. So if if someone's going into a market in, in Wuhan, China, and they're paying, I don't know, $3 a pound for some pangolin for a special soup, maybe the cost of that pound of pangolin should be three million dollars or more to capture what economists call an externality the externality being the global public health and economic crisis that that economic activity is not capturing we can't continue to subsidize those kinds of activities will people lose jobs if they can no longer harvest and sell wildlife in these settings yes some people will have to do something else but we should be looking at food systems and helping places figure out how to meet their you know understandable needs in terms of nutrition, you know, through hygienic, you know, focus on domestic animals and plants, depending upon the culture, and get away from these wildlife source products, particularly when we're talking about species like primates, bats, rodents. Those are taxa that we know have a higher likelihood of uh, harboring viruses that can harm us.
2: So do you think that in a city like Wuhan, the particular markets that were called into suspect during this outbreak, do you think that those should close completely, or you're just saying that we should further regulate what's in the markets themselves?
0: I think the type of market that we are aware of in Wuhan, that market really can't continue to function the way it's been functioning. Now, markets like that, they often have domestic animals, you know, poultry, pigs, beef. I'm not saying, you know, everyone has to go vegetarian. We can have, you know, produce markets and meat markets, but we shouldn't be bringing wildlife species into them. We really need to get away from wildlife source meats. That's the easiest thing to do. And at the same time, obviously, anything markets anywhere in the world can do to improve hygiene is a big plus.
2: Where do you think that kind of regulation should come from? Do you think it should come from the national level or the international community? Where would we start to start putting those regulations into place?
0: i think should be obvious that this is an all hands on deck situation so obviously like any other you know societal change political will is key so national governments need to play a leadership role china has said that they are clamping down on these markets they said that before after the first sars outbreaks and that didn't last very long so we really need to put pressure on countries that are, are allowing these markets to close them down. And we've never in our lifetime seen uh, the leverage that now exists for doing so. So national governments, local governments, the international community, this should be you know, a topic in, in all the halls of power, You know, in the G7, in the G20, in the UN. This global catastrophe, I think that one of the saddest parts with, with all the suffering and all the loss... One of the saddest parts for me as a health professional is this was not only predictable, it was predicted. This was not surprising. We cannot let this happen again.
2: So you're hopeful that this is not going to happen again like it did after the SARS outbreak?
0: Well, I'm hopeful that we finally have the world's attention on this issue that crosses the the, the line between conservation and public health. There's some real global good here uh, if we can can recognize what happened and do our best to prevent it from happening again. I mean, if we take a step back, you know, there are a lot of ways to look at this current problem. And a lot of my colleagues are, you know, experts in virus hunting and looking for the range of viruses that exist in animals around the world. And that's important. And it's certainly interesting. And there are, in mammals alone, hundreds of thousands of viruses. But I'm, I'm a bit frustrated that we're not focusing more energy on the behavioral side of this because there are really only three sets of activities that we as humanity do to invite these viruses into our houses, into our living rooms. So we eat and trade the body parts of wild animals. That's one. We capture and mix wild species together in markets as an economic activity like we were just talking about. And then thirdly, and more broadly, we make incredible incursions into what's left of wild nature. Think about things like deforestation that increase the chances of contact between people and wildlife. Now, I think it's really important that we not blame wildlife or take uh, our frustrations out on wildlife. We are the ones who are, are bringing ourselves into closer contact with these species. You know, right now we're all experiencing social distancing what i'm talking about is really what i would describe as behavioral distancing where we think about our behaviors as humanity and are recognize that our health is absolutely dependent upon a different type of relationship with wildlife and wild nature a respectful relationship we really need what's left of forests and savannas and coral reefs and biodiversity you know for everything from preventing the next pandemic to you know mitigating climate change to having healthy ecosystems. But if we don't change those three baskets of behaviors, the coronavirus we're experiencing now certainly won't be the last pandemic.
2: Hopefully time for us to finally heed the call that a lot of scientists have been making for quite a long time.
1: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. Next up, You'll hear more of Dr. Scarlett Lee's interview of wildlife veterinarian Dr. Stephen Osofsky.
2: I wanted to get a little bit more into the specifics of the the two animals that you mentioned at the beginning the two species, pangolins and bats. And I was wondering if you could just, I guess, specifically with the pangolin, if you could talk a little bit more about this species. People might not be familiar with pangolins, but they're actually an animal that has experienced quite a history past in terms of its interaction with humanity.
0: The pangolin, which sort of looks like an armadillo, if you've seen one of those in, in the American West, There are species of pangolins in Asia and Africa. They are the most traded wildlife species in the world, and they really are being pushed to the verge of extinction because they are in such high demand for their scales and their meat, largely because in some Asian cultures, they're believed to have special medicinal uh, or spiritual properties. It's interesting that the some of the genetics work on this latest coronavirus does show some similarities, some striking similarities in the binding site of the virus to a virus that was isolated from pangolins. But the broader genetic analysis, at least what I've seen recently, really points more to a bat-derived virus, which isn't to say that there hasn't been mixing between species. I'm I'm not a geneticist and I'll be waiting to see what, you know, future research shows. But it's certainly plausible that the virus, you know, it inevitably came from a wild species at some point, whether it was a bat or a pangolin or a virus that moved between a bat, a pangolin and a civet. That's for the geneticist to figure out. But it's been pretty clear as we look at, you know, the MERS outbreaks, the SARS outbreak and now the COVID-19 situation that these viruses that may cause no problems in the animals that they normally reside in uh, wreak havoc when they find new opportunities to jump into humanity.
2: Something else I was curious about was that, you know, obviously penguins, as you described, have a very persecuted past and even bats to a certain extent. Are you worried at all that people might be interested in, in hunting more of these animals to prevent further transmission or persecuting them because of their role in this outbreak?
0: you know, as a conservationist, that's always a concern. We always want to, you know, share messaging, you know, at the local level and at the national level that persecuting wildlife is actually the worst thing you can do. When you try and hunt down wildlife for the types of reasons you're describing, what really happens is you end up disturbing them and dispersing them. And they end up extending their range and finding themselves in even more contact with people so the what the best thing to do is to is to leave them alone and as a matter of fact if you if you think about bats they're actually a very very valuable species you know to the tune of billions of dollars around the world in terms of their services like pollinating important wild plant species they eat tons and tons of insects that would otherwise be damaging crops so if we eliminated all the bats in the world we would be causing a huge ecological cascade of problems so I really really want governments to not, you know, take out their, their anger on wildlife, make wildlife a scapegoat. We have to just control our own behavior, lessen our interactions with these species, stop hunting them, stop eating them. We, in 2020, are capable of doing that in most of the world. There will be places where people are still dependent on wildlife for subsistence, and there will be risks. But the types of risks we're talking about, the magnitude of the risks that we're creating now in these intensive commercial markets... That's not acceptable anymore. We we have to get beyond that.
2: Can you go into a little bit more about why a lot of these viruses seem to be emerging from bats in general and why they seem to be a particular vector for viruses that uh, infect humans?
0: There are a lot of theories about how unique bats are. They, you know, particularly insectivorous bats, because they eat so many different species, they may have created a sort of a pathway for viruses to find them. At the same time, they've evolved uh, some physiological adaptations, some of them related to flight, and some of them may be related to the high pathogen environment they live in, where their body temperature is very high, which probably mitigates the virus's impacts on their own systems. Uh, and so they, they tend to carry a lot of interesting viruses. Uh, You know, we suspect that bats are the, you know, the key hosts in Ebola, although the evidence uh, still needs to be uh, more robust, but they don't seem to get sick from most of the viruses that we're concerned about. So they they really are uh, at the top of the list of high risk animals that we should avoid eating. Similarly, we see a lot of uh, potential risk with people eating primates. Uh, We know, for example, that probably in the 1800s at some point, somebody in Africa butchered a chimp that had simian immunodeficiency virus, and that's how we ended up with HIV getting into human populations. I don't know if most people are aware that HIV was initially a zoonotic disease.
2: That's a really interesting point because this is one of the first times in a long time where people are really learning about zoonoses, which are diseases that transfer from animals to humans. And it's not a term that comes up in the everyday vernacular very often. And I think you bring up a good point that there's a lot a lot of historical, historical emerging diseases actually did come from animals.
0: And most of them from wildlife. Yeah.
2: So hopefully this, again, will bring all of these things to the forefront in everyone's mind. Getting a little bit more into great apes, something that I have been curious about and something that we talked about with the Ebola outbreak was that some of these human diseases can actually spread over again into populations of of wild apes and other closely related mammals to humans. Is that something that you or others are concerned about with this outbreak?
0: Yeah, and 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 you've probably seen in the news that uh, the protected areas that contain, you know, gorillas, for example, are being closed. Not that there are a lot of tourists right now anyway in, in, in Africa, but we definitely don't want a tourist to potentially bring, you know, coronavirus-19 to, you know, the mountain gorillas in Rwanda. You know, we share so much of the genetic background with the chimps and the gorillas. We can create the opportunity for anthropozoanotic transmission, which is what you were describing, where instead of diseases moving from animals to people, it's diseases moving from people to animals. So I think it's very prudent right now to minimize contact between people and these highly endangered great apes, because they are likely at, at risk to the same viruses that are impacting us.
2: You described a lot of these these sanctuaries in Africa and other countries are closing, and a huge Part of their ability to continue to operate is dependent on their bringing in money from tourism. How do you, how do you think this outbreak is going to impact those sanctuaries overall?
0: Well, it's 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 actually much broader than than the great ape sanctuaries. Tourism is such an important economic driver. You know, I spend a lot of my personal work time in Southern Africa, and with the global you know shutdown in terms of travel and tourism, this is this is devastating. Uh, the whole uh, economy of some of these countries really depends on international visitation. And until we come out the other side of this COVID-19 outbreak, we're going to see really serious impacts in terms of growing poverty. And it'll probably by necessity lead to increases in poaching as people have no other options to feed themselves.
2: Yeah, that's, that's terrible. I didn't even think about the cycle completing and returning back to poaching. Is there anything that we can do to prevent this?
0: I think we need to do what we all are being told to do as a society. We really need to shelter in place, you know, use good hygiene, wash our hands constantly. Because we don't have any vaccines, we really need to slow down the rate of transmission. Everyone's learning about flattening the curve. That's really the best thing we can do right now so that eventually you know, many, many people around the world will have been exposed. Hopefully eventually we'll have a vaccine. There are obviously a lot of treatments being evaluated right now, but the sooner business can get back to normal and people feel comfortable venturing out again and and rescheduling their their safaris uh, and other activities, that's what we all can hope for. We're all in the same boat. And that does give me hope having watched wildlife trade largely be treated like a victimless crime for decades one that the conservation community has tried to impact through you know ethical dialogue and moral suasion with without without any real impact we now have the most visible impact that we've seen in generations of a disease like this and if we really i guess this is this is to me a, a hopeful sign we really are at what I call a never again moment. We really have the world's attention. We can get this right. We can close down these markets, have minimal impacts on people's livelihoods, find ways to make sure that people who are in need of animal protein get it in a safer way through domestic sources and we can mitigate a risk that's that has been staring us in the face but we've you know we've been managing to ignore despite warnings from you know from colleagues of mine epidemiologists and and from people uh, like bill gates this this is something that those of us who think about what i call one health the relationship between our own health and the health of wildlife and the health of our domestic animals and the health of our environment this is a no brainer we absolutely have to act now Unfortunately, humanity often only learns its lesson through a crisis, but at least now we have a crisis to learn from, if there's any silver lining here. This should change our behavior.
2: Great. And I really hope that this is this satellite historical event that you describe in terms of bringing everyone together to promote one health. Is there anything else that you'd like to say to our audience?
0: Yeah, I guess there are two other things I I probably should mention. First, I think we have to be very culturally sensitive at this time. This discussion about changing these market dynamics. This is not an anti-Chinese thing or an anti-Asian thing. This is about, you know, logically protecting everybody in Asia, Africa, North America, the whole world. So I resent it when people turn this into some sort of discussion that has some sort of, you know, racial tone to it because it shouldn't. This is a global problem and we need to focus on solving it. Secondly, I get frustrated when people say we shouldn't close down the markets because they'll just go underground and then we won't be able to manage them. I think that's a cop-out. I think it's it's really lacking a respect for the magnitude of the problem we have. When we have global activities that we know are wrong, child sex trafficking, narcotics running, gun running, we don't say, well, let's make them legal. That'll make it easier for us to control. Of course not. We have to decide as a society when something is considered wrong. Wrong for ethical reasons, wrong for public health reasons, wrong for conservation reasons, wrong for economic reasons. And then as a society, we need to stop that activity. Sure, if you clamp down on wildlife trade, there will be underground activities, but that's where political will and law enforcement come into play. And as I said earlier, I actually am encouraged that younger generations in these cultures where wildlife markets are, you know, have been historically present, the younger generations is less and less interested in being consumers of these products. And certainly they have seen what's happening, you know, in their own backyards and around the world. So we need to seize on this moment and shift consumer demand, shift, you know, the availability, and again, mitigate this major, major risk. Will that prevent every possible pandemic? No, but I can guarantee it'll lower the likelihood dramatically. Let's hope we can get it right this time. Thanks so much for the time, Scarlett.
2: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Excelsior. Thank you again to Dr. Ossofsky for joining us. Again, you can follow him on Twitter at wildlifecornell, one word. That's at wildlifecornell. Subscribe to this podcast, Excelsior, for further episodes on the novel coronavirus. Send us any questions you may have about this outbreak to excelsior2018, E-X-C-E-L-L-S-I-O-R, 2018 at gmail.com. Stay home and stay safe.
1: You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Do you have any questions about our coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic? Send us an email at locallysourcedscience at gmail.com. Check out our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. At that site, you can subscribe to new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast apps. Next up is a report from Ben Demoras. Last summer, the Cornell student and amateur beekeeper studied applied science communications at Shoals Marine Lab on Appledore Island. Here, he talks about the work of Cornell bee researcher Tom Seeley.
3: I'm Ben Demoras. I got in a boat in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and headed out to Appledore Island. And being on an island, I expected to learn about things like seabirds, things related to the ocean, but I never expected I'd be learning about bees. In the beekeeping world, Tom Seely is like, a celebrity. He is a bee god. Tom Seeley found that when bees swarm Swarming is when a beehive gets overpopulated, so half the colony leaves to build a nest somewhere else. They actually vote on where to build a new hive by doing a special waggle dance. And this was truly revolutionary. So here I am at Shoals Marine Lab On Appledore Island and I'm reading about Tom Seeley who did this amazing work also on Appledore Island and I am completely blown away so the scientist in me starts wondering why did he have to do this research on an island to understand why I decided to talk to David Holmes. He's volunteered at Shoals Marine Lab's Appledore Island Migration Station since 1975. The migration station bans songbirds to understand their thousands of mile-long migrations each summer and fall, and David was even here on Appledore Island when Tom Seeley did his research here back in 2002. Now wait a minute. What do songbird banding and honeybee research have in common? The reason why there's a bird banding station on Appledore Island and the reason why Tom Seely conducted his research here are actually pretty similar as I would find out. Here's my conversation with David.
0: We have no mammal predators. It's an absolute attractant for birds. One part of my
3: project is actually looking into the research that Tom Seeley did here on bees, and as an island, how that enabled that research to happen. So the point of an island is that there, there were no honeybees out here. And because there are no native honeybees on Appledore Island, it meant Seeley had a sort of natural laboratory. Furthermore, because honeybees like to nest in large, natural cavities inside of tree trunks, and Appledore Island is covered in short, scrubby brush, so Seely knew that the bees he brought to Appledore Island as swarms would vote for one of the empty hives he had placed around the island. This allowed him to tally how many bees were voting for each potential nest box. Because of this island experiment, we know bees collectively make a consensus decision on where to nest. And because Shoals runs a bird banding station here on Appledore Island, they've been able to band over 120,000 birds, and they've gained valuable insight into bird migrations. So there you have it, that's how an island has helped both honeybee and bird research. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Sci Hive and Biology.
1: I'm Esther Rakusin, and you've been listening to Locally Sourced Science. I produce today's show. Dr. Scarlett Lee produced the interview of Dr. Stephen Osofsky, and Ben Demoris produced the piece about studying bees and birds on Appledore Island. Our theme music is from Joe Lewis, and other music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Ben Jordan. You can find all of our archive shows and subscribe to our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. And don't forget to tweet at us at FLX Science Radio. Tune in again for our next show on Tuesday, April 28th. Science out.